0: When I would cry, if my dad was even there, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be any type of comforting. There'd be no comfort. And unfortunately, because my mom was in such a survival mode that like, it was more of a, look, you can cry, just get out of here, but just not in front of me. I did it, but like, I wasn't allowed to show it.
1: This episode is brought to you by The Parlor Hair and Body Salon. With a quick reminder, it's okay to take time for yourself. Hi, I'm Chelsea B. And for those of you who don't know me, let me introduce myself. I'm not a life coach, a therapist, or a certified anything, really, except like CPR and first aid. (laughs) Heck, I don't even have a college degree. I am, however, a regular old human with a huge heart and problems, just like you. If you're looking for a podcast to solve all of life's mysteries and show you how to become super successful, you're in the wrong place. This is Beyond the Picket Fence, a podcast that tells the behind the scenes of people's lives to remind you that no one is perfect. This is officially your invitation to take a break from trying to keep it all together. Let's get real. I was going to call this episode The Celiac's Husband, but this conversation went somewhere so different than I thought it would. I thought we would be hearing Bethany's story again, but through her husband's perspective. If you miss Bethany's story, you can go back and listen to last season. Just go to the episode called The Celiac. It's really good. And in hindsight, I realize how silly it was for me to guess that any two human experiences would be told the same way. So while it is kind of a part two of The Celiac, this episode more stands alone as Robert's story. On this show, we hear women a lot and all of the difficulties that come with the role of a woman. today. We get to see into a man's heart, and I am beyond grateful that Robert allowed us in. Maybe, just maybe, this episode can be the start to men being open to the idea of vulnerability. So, here he is, Robert Pearson.
0: My, uh, my name is Robert Pearson. Um, obviously, I'm the husband of the celiac, I guess. So, um, I, I guess uh, you want to know a little bit about me and where I come from and things of that nature, I guess. So yeah, I was originally born in Alabama. I lived in Texas for years, and then I moved to Utah when my dad decided that he wanted to randomly go back to school, and my parents decided we needed to move to Utah for some reason. Um, Why did I live in Alabama and Texas and a few other places in between? I was a military brat, so I grew up in a military family until my dad retired, and that's when we moved to Texas. So I spent a good portion of my life up until almost junior high. Um, in Texas and then moved out to Utah and that's where I resided for quite a few years until I met my wife and that is when we ended up moving out to to California and we lived there for a good while and now we live in Arizona uh, so that's you know that's kind of <laughs> kind of my you know just a little bit there um,
1: Your geographic history. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's kind of my geographic history, kind of where I come from.
1: When Robert volunteered to come tell his story, I was curious if he was going to tell his side of everything that happened with his wife or if we would get his personal story. Why was I thinking that was two separate things? I do not know. But obviously, his upbringing turned him into the perfect partner to go through everything by Bethany's side. So we go back.
0: I'm going to preface a little bit in case uh, for some reason, like, Start crying or something of that nature. I grew up being told like you're not supposed to cry. It wasn't something we did. Uh, It wasn't something you were supposed to do. I did it a lot as a kid. Uh, So there came a point where like I told myself I just wasn't going to do it anymore. And so now it it's not something that happens often. However, 2023 rolled around and I said to myself uh, that I was going to take this year to stop comparing myself to like other people and things of that nature. And Unfortunately, uh, that, that all changed.
1: Some neighbor kids came into Robert's life for a while and it triggered some childhood stuff that he had suppressed.
0: That's kind of one of the reasons I agreed to do this, because this is almost like a healing thing um, where I'm allowing myself, um, like Bethany, who's always said like she's an open book, I would say I've always been an open book if people came asking, I guess was always the thing. Like, sure, I'm open. I'll tell you about everything. But you kind of had to ask the right questions where this time around it's, I'm gonna freely give this information. Um, I kind of feel like I need to do it in order to deal with some of the things that have kind of come up in the process of of taking in these kids.
1: Like he said, Robert grew up in a military family.
0: I grew up with a father who, for lack of a better word, had some mental issues that uh, to this day are still not taken care of. He went to Vietnam, he has terrible PTSD, that I dealt with my whole entire life. He was very quick to anger. He was always very, uh, you know, for some of my older siblings, he was physically abusive, me, he wasn't. So I guess, you know, to to kind of go on to that is like, my father was, I, I always kind of, I used to pretend like everything was okay in my life. Like that there was, you know, oh, you know, I remember like, you know, as, as you know, and I mean, I guess listeners, like I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so, At 19, I went on a mission and I used to tell people all the time, yeah, my family life is great. I have two parents. They're married. They've been married for years upon years and everything's fine. Uh, But deep down inside, everything wasn't fine. Like my dad had PTSD. My mom will say it and I can say it now as I'm older. Is like I had a two-parent household, but one parent. Basically, my dad would come home from work. He'd go in his room. He'd take a nap. He'd come out. He'd get dinner. He'd go back in his room or his office or, you know, whatever. Um, We grew up very, very poor because my dad had terrible spending habits that kind of led to um, anytime I'd say, hey, I wanted to, like, I remember I wanted to learn to play the guitar and my mom just like, there's no money for that. I started working at the age of 12 because like, I didn't have any other option. Like I knew if I wanted to buy the shoes I wanted and the clothes I wanted, or like when I got into high school, and I wanted to go to school dances and different things like that. I had to pay for them myself. I was never getting help from my parents because, as my mom would say, it just wasn't there. But why wasn't it there? Because my dad always spent the money. He always like he'd waste it on things. You know, a lot of people with PTSD they get involved in drugs and alcohol and different things of that nature. My dad never got involved in that, but he got involved in spending. And like, I mean, I'd come home from school. It's like, what's this car? Like, there's a new car. He'd just go and like trade in the car. He wouldn't consult with my mom at all. He'd just go and do it. And then like. They'd have like car payments, or he would buy motorcycles. He always had this idea, like, oh, I'd fix it up and resell it, and it just never happened. And then he'd like donate it, and it's like you just lost five grand or whatever, you know. And so, it's not that the money wasn't there; it just wasn't used properly. And he was very verbally abusive. He was, um, he, he was uh, just, uh, I guess, emotionally abusive, you know. Um, and so, I, I, I guess that's just like. That's some of the stuff I've never really dealt with in the way of like, how does this make me feel? Because I, like I said, we moved around a lot when I was a kid until we settled in Texas and I had to learn to make friends really easily. I had to be extroverted. I I had to make friends and to hide my family. I always did it with humor. Um, I've always been like a big joke player. Like I, I always could joke about things. In fact, to the extent that like, I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me like you're being sacrilegious or things because I will make a joke out of everything and it still happens now. And, and sometimes I'm like, am I, am I addressing a serious situation or am I trying to just like joke it off because that's what I've always done. And so, you know, so that, that's kind of the, that's kind of where my, my life comes from is I, I, did have a dad there, but an absent dad, you know, like I always knew I wasn't going to have that dad, that like, let's go in the backyard and throw the ball or, you know, whatever. Like it it just, he wasn't there for that. He was there, but he wasn't, you know, that's the best I can, I can say.
1: At what point did you realize this? Because I feel like in so many of the stories of childhood trauma that I've heard, they don't realize that it's not normal until they get kind of out of it. And then they're like, Whoa, that was not, what most kids go through or whatever so like at what point did you realize this
0: to be honest like probably like 13 14 is where I really realized like oh uh this is weird you know like and I guess some of it too is because like as a kid you know I grew up I grew up with a child of like the the 80s and 90s area like When it comes to like generations, you know, like I'm an early millennial, you'd call me like an elder millennial and, you know, and I always joke, like the millennials really don't want us and the Gen Xers don't want me because I fall in that area. That's one year removed from being a Gen X and one year to be a millennial. So it's like, you know, nobody really wants us, but, uh, you know, I, I sit there and I go, well, I also grew up in a time where like men were men, you know, like men were men, they went to work, they brought home the bacon, like all that stupid shit, but like, that was kind of the way it was. And so when I looked around, it was like, oh yeah, everybody's dad was that way. You know, they went to work, they came home, they went to work, they came home. What I didn't know was that these other families were going on vacations together and they were going on trips together or their dads were at their games or their dad was at, you know, some of those things or, or, you know, maybe not all of them, but, but tried. And it was probably about 13 or 14 uh, maybe actually, maybe like 12, 12, I moved to Utah and, uh, right around that, that time. And I made friends with some neighbor boys and they were really big into sports. Right. And they became my best friends. You know, they were kind of that, uh, when things were tumultuous at my house, because there was a lot of yelling due to my dad, you know, and, and my mom kind of went into at some point in her life, went into survival mode. Right. So like he would yell and she'd just yell back, like, you know, cause she had, Four or five kids, five kids at the time. You know, I was the baby until my sister came eight years later, and um, you know she had five kids. And she just she says it to me now, where she says, "You got to understand, like I didn't leave him because I knew if I left, he wouldn't pay alimony, he wouldn't pay child support, he wouldn't do any of that type of stuff." And for for you guys, I had to stick around. Um, now, if you ask her why she stays, she actually says, because I spent so much of my life spending time dealing with his crap. And as a pauper, that now that he's retired and he's getting military retirements and social security and all this different stuff, she's like, I, I live better than I ever have. I just have to live in the same house with him, you know? And so, so it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's sad, but like, she, she kind of is like, I'm finally getting my payoff for all the years that I dealt with. him." Well, um,
1: I do want to ask you. So you think that your coping mechanism was... Humor and just like kind of laughing it off and just toughing it out, being a man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what it was. And I don't think I realized that until honestly this, this like last year, because, you know, it was, it was, you know, you gotta be, you gotta be a man. You gotta do the manly thing. You gotta do this or that. You know? And it's just like, uh, like I said, when I moved to Utah, I made friends with this family and they were my safe haven. I was over their house constantly. And then, you know, and then we we made friends with other friends and, you know, we'd be at their house constantly. Like, essentially, I'd be somewhere other than home as much as I possibly could. And I didn't realize it until I look back on it that, like, why was I always with friends? Well, because I didn't want to be where he was. I didn't want to be where the yelling was. I didn't want to be where the screaming was, you know.
1: When Robert was much older, his mother shared a memory with him.
0: There was a day I was sitting in a high chair and my sisters were at school. My brother was playing and my mom stopped feeding me in the high chair, got her keys, walked outside and realized my dad took the car instead of his motorcycle to work. And that's the only reason she stayed. She was at that moment prepared to leave us all there and just leave. That's, you know, it's, it's hard to swallow. It makes you realize like how bad things were. Right. And like I said, I, I, I used a lot of humor you know I made friends really easily people always kind of you know even maybe in school at sacrifice a little bit because I was a little bit of the class clown and you know I, I made friends with lots of different people because that was the way I hid anybody wanting to know kind of what's going on with my family or how my family was is they didn't care about my family they cared about like hanging out with me and being around me and like you know so so that was you know, and then, like I said, just the whole, like, you got to be a man, you know, you got to be a man, you got to be a man. And I, I joke a lot of times that I don't fit in, in a lot of crowds, especially like, even at church, at church, I, I joke all the time that like, I'm not six feet tall, I don't love basketball, and I don't hunt. And that's like 90% of the guys I meet at church. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't do any of those things. Like, I, when I was younger, I, and see, that was the thing is I think, I think that's where you know, my coping mechanism led me to like the punk rock scene. Like, mm. um, I, I can remember the first time I went to like a punk rock show and, you know, people were jumping on stage and jumping off stage. And it's just this, like, it's this crazy chaos, but yet everybody's watching out for each other. And you've got people who genuinely suddenly care about you. And it's like a weird family in a weird, dis- not dysfunctional way, but like in a weird, um, you know, one minute you're jumping on somebody and the next minute you're like, literally like hugging people. Um, and it can be weird, but it's a it's a strange thing that I still love to this day. But I realized like what led me down that road was the sense of brotherhood and the sense of family and the sense of like people who understood me because I would even say like out of my family unit, I was the weird one. I was the, you know, I was the one that like, you know, listen to like heavy metal and like punk rock and all that type of stuff where my brother was a little more subdued. He was, I mean, he was a handful, but like, he wasn't nearly like rebellious, I guess you'd say, you know.
1: Do you feel like you were you rebellious?
0: Uh, no, no, actually I don't because, and see, this is the thing is, and if, you know, people who might listen to this, who actually know me, who, <laughs> you know, uh, or like, I've always pushed those boundaries a little bit. And once again, this is I think why I got involved in like punk is because well, and I think I got involved in it too because I had a dad who was so regimented, so like you know, he came from a military background. He wanted to run that house like a military, like a boot camp. And you know, I, I joke that with my dad, it was he would say jump and you'd say how high while you're jumping. Because like it wasn't just good enough to say how high do you want me to jump? It's you're jumping and asking at the same time because you better be doing it. And, you know, when I got involved in like the hardcore and punk rock and straight edge scene, you know, these were people that were like authority, push back on it, push back on it. And so when it came to like church, for example, and being rebellious, sure. I was, you know, I would go to a punk rock show where I'm like jumping, literally jumping on people Uh, to do like sing-alongs and things, and then going to church on Sunday, uh, to where I was going and passing the sacrament. And, you know, if you know anything about our church, you know, for anybody who's listening, you know, there's kind of a standard that people are held to, and I never broke any of those standards. That's the thing. Like, was I maybe a little loud, and a little raucous, and a little rough around the edges, and like, you know, would wear like Iron Maiden t-shirts, and things with like skulls, and just things that like, you know, a good LDS boy didn't wear or didn't do or dye my hair blue or like, you know, things like that. Uh, Yeah, I did. But was I ever out getting drunk or high or, uh, you know, having like promiscuous sex? Like, no, I wasn't.
1: Yeah, as you're talking when you're like, well, on Saturday I'd be at punk shows and then I'd be passing the sacrament. My first thought was, okay, so like nothing's wrong with that.
0: Yeah, I did have an old lady one time pull me aside and say, you shouldn't be doing that. You should not be passing the sacrament. I said, why? Like, what did I do wrong? And mm-hmm. she's like, well, I know what kind of music you listen to. I know what this is and that and the other. And I said, but I, I've done nothing that restricts me from doing that. Yeah, um, And that's where, like I say, like I kind of push that authority. I push that boundaries. I push that culture. And to this day, uh, and I think Bethany maybe touched on this if I remember right like, to this day, I kind of push those boundaries, and I push that culture, and I push and push and push away from it by being, like, you know, LGBT, like, supportive, Um, you know, uh, when, like, Black Lives Matter was, like, a real big thing, I mean, not that it's changed any for me, but, like, I've always been supportive of those who, you know, and I guess this comes from, like, that punk rock scene, too, where, like, I've always felt like I have to be somewhat of a voice for those voiceless, you know, those people who are like marginalized and pushed down or not like everybody else. And, you know, and and sometimes that doesn't rub people right. and <laughs> That's okay.
1: This reminded me of the new Matilda movie. If you haven't watched it, I definitely recommend it. I have a friend who didn't love it because Matilda came across like a brat and disrespectful. I slightly disagree with that. I love how Miss Trenchable calls them revolting children, as in like disgusting. Then they later sing a song. We are revolting children living in revolting times. As I listened to that, I realize it was meaning revolting as a verb form for the word revolution. I don't think it's teaching us to just be rude and disrespectful. I believe it's teaching us to stand up and use our voices. Spoiler alert here, Miss Honey stayed quiet and her aunt, Miss Trenchable, had power over her well into adulthood. If your, child, if your child was being abused like Matilda was, would you really want them to be polite and well-mannered? No. It also reminded Robert of a song too.
0: I remember there being a, a song when I was younger that, you know, it starts off and it says, we must revolt against oppression and old ideals. That's how it started off. And you'd hear it every single time. And it's just like, yeah, I want to push against oppression and old ideals. And unfortunately, I lived in a household that pushed those oppression and old ideals Mm. and so to this day I kind of have you know I I have a great relationship I (laughs) will there there is me again uh I have a good relationship with my dad in the sense that I've just learned how like here's here's a kind of our line this is where you know and that's only happened within the last year or so where I've had to learn to set boundaries and and things of that nature and and that you know once again that kind of leads me to why I'm why I'm on here is like it's helping me to, to push past some of that stuff that I kept hidden and just would kind of maintain as opposed to addressing.
1: Yeah. I love that. You just caught yourself doing that. Like I have a great relationship and you're like, wait, I'm going to be true to myself here.
0: (laughs) Right. Because I, I look back on other people. Like I was telling you earlier, I look back on my friends, you know, whose dad helped him coach baseball, you know, went to every single game was there when like, you know, I, I just remember we'd go to like haunted houses, for example, for one of their birthdays. There's always in an October and he would drive us and like five other kids to a haunted house. And then he'd literally sit outside in the car waiting for us. My dad would have never done that. He'd have just been like, no, you're not doing it. My mom would have had to do it. Mm. And it's like, how can you run a house and do that? And, you know, like to all those single mothers out there, like my mom was that but my dad was right there in the other room. That's, you know, like you said, you know, I I caught myself because I oftentimes would just be like, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. And I'm like, no, you know, like when I compare it to somebody else's relationship, it's not great. It is really bad.
1: And maybe not even comparing it to other people's relationship, but comparing it to what you need or what you want.
0: Yeah. Or, or the, the person I want to be.
1: Yeah. Um, (gasps) The father you want to be. Ooh, I just got goosebumps. The weight of not becoming your parents can tend to sneak into your thoughts and shade your rational decision-making. Robert's dad had an office, and while there was no rule that the kids couldn't be in there, it was clearly not a welcoming space. The candy in the bowl was not a fun, shareable candy bowl. Now, as an adult, Robert has an office, and he has made it a point to let his daughters be welcome in there.
0: I said, whatever he did, I don't want to do. And so That led to kind of the complete opposite where the other day I, so, so I, I suffer from anxiety. I do have anxiety. Um, Do I take medication for it? No. I've learned how to balance myself with my workload and different things to where I don't feel like I need to. And life was just kind of like, it was just chaos, right? Like I had all these kids and like things and work was crazy and just, all this stuff's going on. And I came home one day and there's like a kid on my computer in my office. There's a kid watching TV. Bethany's upstairs watching TV. And I'm just like, I've got nowhere I can sit. I've got nowhere I can sit. I've got nowhere I can decompress. Uh, I ended up cleaning our kitchen and yelling at everybody for coming in to get snacks. Um, You know, and it was just like, I realized like, I've got to take something back in a, in a sense. Like I, I, and so now I've kind of kicked them all out of my office. They're not allowed to, like, they could be in here, but like, no longer are you going to play computer. You can't sit in here and do everything. I kind of just need that, that little space. But like I said, you know, I went from, from like having a dad that, to not wanting to be that. And I had a really conflicting thing this last week where I told, you know, I told Bethany, I was like, I, I don't want to do it. Like, I, I feel bad taking this office as like mine because that was my dad. And it's been a real conflict this last week to, to get over that hurdle of like, you're not being your dad. You're you're not being him by doing that. What you're doing is you, you are, you know, it's, it's like on the airplane, you know, I'm putting my oxygen mask on first so I can then help.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And I can be that father that, my children need i can't not put on my my oxygen mask and suffocate and die and then be able to help them so Mm -hmm. you know that's the way i've kind of had to look at it is like by by finally taking some of this this stuff and addressing it and like making time for me it you know it it, like i said it's like putting my oxygen mask on um so i can better not be my dad (laughs) (laughs)
1: Isn't it so interesting? What we can see clearly as third party observers, obviously Robert is very caring, very active, and so involved with his wife and kids. If you look at all those facts on a piece of paper written out, it's obvious. But our brains can take something and make it mean so much more or less because our brain has been through that trauma and now sees the world that way. And oh, the effort it takes to retrain the brain and it's very uncomfortable. You got to recognize that you're very active. When I've been there you're super helpful to Bethany and you're talking with your kids and having fun with your kids by the pool and stuff like that. And so there's a difference. You're not hiding all the time, but you do need oxygen <laughs> too.
0: Yeah. yeah. And and that I'm I'm happy that you see that. I mean, that's great. Uh, you know, um it's hard for me to take that type of compliment this is another one of those things that i'm dealing with right now is you know i it, it's hard for me to take that compliment cuz i just kind of go uh oh, no 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 uh, yeah cuz in in some aspect you know i've grown up with this humble humility right like mm-hmm. we're we're always told like you can be proud of your accomplishments but be humble about them you don't go bragging about them you don't always talk about how like you're so helpful with this and that and the other and like everything in between but you know uh that that's kind of it is like i i am that way because of everything i just talked about and this is kind of where it goes like you know how do i help bethany with with the things that she's dealt with and the things she's dealing with and it's because of that i'm completely i I strive to be completely opposite of what I had, you know, um, I try not to yell at my kids. I don't spank my kids. I am a firm believer in like, if I give my kids a little bit, they're gonna give me a lot. Where my dad was like, you're gonna get a little bit because I don't think I could trust you with anything else. You know, um, and it was it was almost that like, I don't trust you until you you let me, until you give me a reason to trust you where I'm the opposite, where I go, yeah, I will trust you 100% until you break that. And I've had this conversation with, the, you know, these other kids is like, you know, I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll catch them in things and I'll be like, Hey, are you doing this, that, and, you know? And they'll just be like, uh, and I said, listen, if you tell me now you're like, the punishment's going to be way less now than if I find out on my own, like a week from now. And Because I'm trusting you 100% to make good choices, to be good, to like, you know, do those things like I've taught you guys to do. Uh, And that's because with my dad, not so much my mom, but my dad was like, you know, I I don't trust you on anything like, or or he, like I said, he wasn't, he just wasn't there, you know? So, so those things has led me to help with Bethany and her trauma and things of that nature, because I'm exactly... I'm completely the opposite of what my dad was where like my dad would have just been like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move along. And, you know, you didn't talk about depression. You didn't talk about anxiety. Like I said, he has PTSD. He's gone to therapists. And in the moment that therapists are like, here's what you need to do. He just stops going. He won't do it. And it's unfortunate. It's uh, you know. um, It seems like
1: that generation, because I know of people like that too. Like they just can't. Get to the heart of it, like it's they just can't. It's so crazy to watch. Well,
0: and see, and that's the other thing I kind of talk about is like generationally Yeah, it's it's part of their generation. I think, um, you know, th- this is where I have a really hard time right now with with our our climate in America. Uh, not to get too political or anything, but like, you know, I see a lot of people who are like, oh, you know, kids nowadays, people nowadays, they have no morals, they have nothing like this, they have nothing, 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 and why can't it be like the good old days? And my sister, who's like a history teacher goes, what do you mean? Like, I mean, she's Gen X through and through. And and she's like, what are you talking about? Like the generation before you guys, the, the greatest generation had guys who came back from world war II and had multiple families or went to go buy cigarettes and just never came back. And you're telling me that everybody was fine and good and healthy. And then they just you know, all weren't did...
1: talking about it.
0: Right. We just weren't talking about it. Nobody was talking about it. Nobody was acknowledging it. And, and then like my dad's generation, you know, you've had people who you hear, like, you know, beating their wives and like, i not saying that people don't do that now, but like, you know, beating their wives and having multiple families or walking out on their families or just being completely absent like mine was because we just didn't talk about it because you had to be you had to be manly you can't cry you can't talk about being depressed like you don't acknowledge those things and that's where you know and even myself like I was 16 17 18 19 in late 90s early 2000s where uh, if you look back on that or you lived through it you know music and culture and stuff was very pushed on like you got a women uh, like womanizing mm-hmm. is totally normal like I look back on it and like a big band at the time was like Limp Biscuit, right if you ever listened to their songs I'm like holy crap <laughs> were, were people really even myself and some of my friends like were we taught like saying some of this stuff or you look back on teen movies at the time like just recently we watched a teen movie and I was just like the amount of times that fag was used in the movie and I'm just like this was a like we just thought this was okay like how how did we think this is okay, you mm-hmm. know? And I knew at the time, like, it wasn't. that's when I started, like, kind of pushing back on those things. And, and now it's just nice that we see a climate in society in general that's starting to kind of come around on that. And, like...
1: Yeah. One societal thing that really sucks is this idea that being a man means not crying. Like, what? So do you remember what would happen when you cry?
0: I was a very <laughs> emotional kid, like... When I was a kid, my brother would pick on me relentlessly. I mean, he's four years older, like he's a brother. Um, I remember we played Star Wars, and I had to be job of the hut, and so <laughs> I had to I had to climb in a green sleeping bag up to my neck and like you know, and that made me cry. like everything made me cry. But when I would cry, it would just kind of be this like like if my dad was even there, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be any type of comforting. There'd be no comfort. And unfortunately, because my mom was in such a survival mode that like, it was more of a, look, you can cry, just get out of here, but just not in front of me. I did it, but like, I wasn't allowed to show it. Mm. And and then there'd be no real comforting involved in that. There'd be no, none of that. I, I mean, my mom would usually probably come after things had settled down and stuff, but like some of my crying came from like my dad, my dad would yell so easy. Yeah, the slightest little thing. I I mean, we used to joke that there was a game and I don't know if it's still around, but it was called don't wake daddy. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's a board game, right? Where you like move and you get on pieces and you hit the little alarm clock and you hope daddy doesn't like pop up. And my siblings and I were watching a commercial and that came on. And I remember one of us looked at my mom and said, we don't need that game. We live it because if you woke daddy at any time, it's, it's not pretty. To the extent that I am almost 40 and I was at my parents' house the other day and I came into their home. I walked upstairs and my dad was in his little office asleep. And I literally turned around and walked back downstairs because I was like, do not wake him up. What's he going to do to me at 40 years old? Like almost 40. And I'm still worried about waking up my dad. He'd yell, he'd get mad, he'd do things, he'd get mad over the slightest little thing or you know, anything like that. And then I think the only time I ever heard my dad ever say I love you was when he'd be apologizing for yelling but it came to my attention later in life actually with my brother because my brother went and sought saw, saw counseling and stuff and says look our dad's a he's a, he's a textbook narcissist to where when he does something wrong he will do and say whatever he has to to make you go Okay, thanks. I forgive you. Everything's good, but it doesn't change what he does. He continues to do it, and I don't know if Bethany had touched on it, but like a few years ago, they just had a disagreement with something, and it just got to the point where my dad was up in her face and like yelling at her because he's always right. He's always right. You know, nobody's ever right, and Bethany's a bit of a pushback. You know, like she's a very strong personality. She's uh, very opinionated and. It's part of why I married her, you know, like I I signed up for that. I wouldn't want to change her for anything um, because I'd much rather her push that authority. Uh, Unfortunately, that authority ended up being my dad. So I had to kind of deal with it, but he spent literally the last year trying to get her to like sit down and talk with him, so he could say whatever he needed to say to try and make it better. And she was just like, I'm going to be the first person that says no. And uh, I will say it's been probably a year to two years. And just this year was the first year she'd been at my parents' house for Christmas.
1: So let's dig into this theme that this interview keeps coming back to, this be a man idea. Isn't it interesting how I just praised Robert for being out with his kids at the pool and helping his wife? Why is that so incredible to us and not just the standard? How often are we seeing a mom out playing with her kids and think, oh, how amazing that mother is mothering rarely. But you see a dad with his kids and that's super impressive.
0: Right, right. You know, and, you know, that's that's one of those things that like I'm really, really trying. And this is where, like I said, I'm an open book if you came and asked the right questions where I've kind of decided in this last, you know, for this, for 2023, to to stop waiting for people to ask the questions and just coming out and saying it. Because like you said, you know, being a man meant going and doing manly things. And you know, and if you had a boy, you had manly boy things. Hey, guess what? Some of us got stuck with two girls and I wouldn't change it for the world. I love my girls and they're amazing. And sometimes they like have some interest that I have and it's great. Um but like, you know, we were, boys were meant to be a certain way. And, and, and this is something that I do want to kind of address. And I think that we need to address in our lives is there's been a lot of push on like, you know, we we've objectified women for so long and that's 100% true. And I don't want to objectify women. Um, you know, like I said, I have two daughters and I was talking to somebody the other day who was saying their daughter, who's like 15, they, they said, yeah, she's uh she's a great kid, but you know, sometimes she's she pushes back a little too much. And I said I'd much rather my daughter's push back than never push back. Like I want good strong women who have no problem. Like I want feminist women. I want feminist daughters. I want daughters who are going to stand up for what is best for them and best for others and not just like let some guy have an opinion or think women need to be a certain way but with that being said there's definitely been a history of like men are a certain way and it's actually really toxic it's really bad uh you know to the extent where we see a man out playing with his kids or at the park with his kids or you know going on dates with his daughters or whatever you know and it's like oh he's such a good dad you know like you praise that and I appreciate that and why have we always been okay with men just being this typical stereotype of like grunting idiots? You know? like, I always hated the term, just you wait till your father comes home. like, oh, okay, yeah. When my father comes home, he's gonna go to sleep. Like, well, big deal. Like I don't care. My mom, on the other hand, was the one I was afraid of in the sense of like disciplining, um because she was the disciplinarian. you know, my dad didn't do anything. He just yelled at people and, got mad and was scary. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know why we have it that way where like it's so surprising to see a dad be a dad or be caring or be anything. I mean, my girls do swim and they're both working towards getting on a swim team and competing. And I am at every one of their practices every Monday. I, I'm at every one of their meets when they have their little meets um, and I don't see that changing where it was common for guys to like, ah, you don't go to practices, like, you know, you try to make it here and there or, you know, or work and career is so important that you sacrifice everything and it just doesn't need to be that way.
1: It doesn't need to be that way at all. I believe the man designed by God and the woman designed by God both deserve better than these negative toxic labels we've created. God created men as more than a grunting idiot and women for more than a sexy body flaunting around. We are designed amazingly and incredibly for more than what this society and media has shown us to be.
0: My degree is in communications and sociology. I double majored in those two things when I went to college. So I took classes that looked at exactly that. It looked at like how our society and media has has made you know these these ideas of like this is what women do this is what men do and it's it's just one of those things where like it just doesn't need to be that way like why do we need it that way why why is it that men can't be sensitive and for me growing up like um like I said the time period where I grew up if you showed that sensitivity you were automatically labeled gay Mm -hmm. and it was like you know I I I'll tell you right now I'm the furthest thing from being gay than ever, but like that's how it was. That's you were labeled that, and it was it was labeled that as like a derogatory thing, right? Like
1: not that long ago, it was not okay for men to show sensitivity. You had to like sports and hunting, and heaven forbid you're into the arts.
0: Yeah, that's the other thing too is if you were like an art person, you were automatically looked at like mm,
2: something's yeah.
0: wrong with you. <laughs> I, I I remember. Okay, so I'll, I'll give this example is in high school, I, uh, I you know, had to take like a, an elective and I took, I took the cooking class because I love to cook. I love it. I, it's, it's something I absolutely love. And early on, I realized like people would say like, oh, the woman's place is in the kitchen. You know, go make me a sandwich. You hear that type of stupid saying, right? And I'm like, but yet you look at most famous chefs, and they're men, but why is it men? I mean, it's changed now. You see a lot more high-end like chefs that are women, which is great. But like, I, I didn't understand that, and and so I took this cooking class at school. I got made fun of, and this is one of those things where I say like, this is some of that toxicity is like my way of uh, telling my friends that yeah, I took this cooking class wasn't because I absolutely love to cook. It was where do you think all the girls are? Mm. and yes I was one of two boys in the class but that's not why I took it I took it because I really enjoy it I enjoyed it I loved it nowadays I can openly say it and like it, it, it's a very big part of me as a person it's kind of a little bit of a love language yeah. You know, but the, my point being was that I took the cooking class because I liked it but I dealt with everybody like until my friends started realizing like I was bringing food and they were eating the food I made. Then they stopped kind of looking at it that way. But like the fact that all of the boys I knew were just like, why are you doing that woman stuff? And I was like, oh, because all the girls are there, right? Like that that's terrible. Yeah. That's terrible that as a man, I felt like that had to be the reason.
1: How often do we not buy our sons that doll, or that toy kitchen, or our daughters that cool toolkit because we're so worried about them being quote unquote confused? Are we the ones putting ourselves and each other into these boxes? And how unfair to the LGBTQ community? There are many straight men with what we deem as feminine qualities, and imagine how confusing it must be for a guy who actually loves all those manly things yet still identifies as homosexual. Do you see the problem? Not to mention the whole color thing. Last I checked, colors didn't have penises and vaginas. Every time my kids say pink is a girl color, I remind them that colors cannot be boys or girls. They don't have bodies. So there is that problem of all these confusing societal rules and not to mention the insane amount of suicides because of these toxic ideals. Especially in men because feeling your emotions and being allowed to be sensitive is not manly. The buck has to stop somewhere.
0: It, it really does. It does. And that's one of the reasons that I feel like I have to, you know, I have to come on something like this and talk about these things. And I have to kind of address my own issues so that I can, I can get past this like idea that, you know, I've got to hide my trauma and I can take my trauma and I can use it to help somebody else. Um, little known fact, like, so, I I already feel it like coming, so I think Bethany addressed it. I don't know, and I'm sorry if I end up telling this and she doesn't want it. Uh, we were married for only a few years. We moved to Utah or we moved to California, and we got a call one day, and her niece had committed suicide. I didn't know this niece well, but Bethany did, and you know it was a very hard time. It for years it was really hard. But what made it really hard, too, was I had no friends, no friends whatsoever. Bethany had friends. I didn't have friends. You know, she grew up there. Uh, and so I started meeting people. And there was one guy I met. His name is Jared. And he was the first person that, like, he was a member of the church and things, but came from kind of the similar backgrounds as me, you know, uh, you know with, like, the music scene, different stuff. And being a little bit of that, that kind of pusher right, his mother-in-law had actually been excommunicated from the church for speaking out about, you know, homosexuals being allowed, like, certain things in the church, and this was years and years ago. I don't think they have done it now, but, like, back then they did, and, uh, you know, like, he, he just was the first person to really, like, kind of, like, befriend me and be really nice and just genuinely nice and just care about me, and unfortunately, he he committed suicide as well. And it's, it was like, he wasn't gay, but he had mental health issues that he, he hid by being happy all the time. You know, he hid by being funny. He hid by, you know, all these things and really he was struggling. And unfortunately something told him he couldn't get that help that he needed and it's unfortunate it's unfortunate that you know that idea of like a man has to be a man he has to be a certain way has led to things like that um genuine good people who could bring so much to the world deciding that they they couldn't uh and that's where like that that stuff needs to change you know it needs to we need to change that and once again like i said like in order to make those changes, in order to be the voice for those changes, like going back to the, the oxygen mask, I've got to, I've got to kind of, I got to take care of myself first so then I can, I can help others.
1: What do you think would make a difference for men?
0: Um, I, I think you're doing a really good thing with like what you're doing. I mean, you don't exclude men. Um, you're allowing people to tell their stories. Uh, allowing these safe spaces for people to tell their stories. And, and I think trying to change that idea of like, men have to be men, they have to be rugged, they have to be this or that. And like, I, I just think if more people kind of get on board, it's like a snowball, right? Like, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and it just becomes the norm. I guess I, I look at it somewhat, not to take away from the from the plight of, you know, like the LGBT community, but like, <clears throat> I can remember a time when, you know, same-sex marriage was, it was illegal, right? You couldn't do it. And people were so afraid of it. And there was all these protests against it. And now it's almost like, eh, like sure there's people who don't like it, but like, it's almost normal, right? Like I think about it now and I'm like, okay, yeah. Like, oh, this is your husband, like, like, when I hear somebody say like, this is my husband or this is my wife and they're a same sex couple, there's not this jarring effect anymore because we've just gotten used to it and realized, oh my gosh, the world did not come crumbling down just because they got married. Like all they did was get nice legal benefits that helped them. Benefits that you deserve and I deserve and everybody deserves for being human. But at one point it was like, Oh, here we go. Now the now the homosexuals get to get married. And it's like, well, what did you think was gonna happen? Like they were gonna start lives and buy homes and mow their grass? Like, who cares? You know, and and, and now it's it's just kind of a thing that gets said and done. And it's it's you know, sure, it might be weird to my grandma, but she's 90, you know. And so I think as as being a younger generation, like. If we start doing it, and we teach our children to do it, there's there's your answer. It's we teach our children, we teach the youth. You know, I worked a lot with the youth in in church, and I've wondered sometimes because I haven't in years now is because <laughs> is it because I I maybe push some of this stuff a little bit too much? But our youth are not stupid. You know, they they're not dumb. Like they, they sometimes they get treated like they're dumb but the the youth of this world are not dumb like they look around and they go that doesn't seem right and it's up to us as their parents and like their leaders and their examples to say you know what you're right it's not right so what are you going to do about it and there's definitely regions in our country in different areas where uh you know because I've met people who are young and think just like their parents or just like their parents' generation. And it's that like toxicity and things, and it, and it still lives, but like, you know, if, if the more of us who who teach our children, like, it's not okay to, to have a judgment of somebody because of the color of their skin. It's not okay to just have a judgment because of their, you know, sexual preference. It's not okay no matter how much you don't understand it, it's not okay to treat them differently. And if we can get the youth to be on board with that, then they're going to teach their children and their children are going to teach their children. And eventually it becomes a thing where it's not so much a, I mean, there's always going to be those pockets, but the more we can fight against those pockets, the less they can, you know, be into everybody's vernacular in society. Right. Um, do I know everything? No, I don't. But like, that's my thoughts. That's my theories. And that's why like my children will say like, you know, oh, they did this because the person was black or the person was Mexican. And I'm like, yeah. And they go, that's really messed up. And I said, yeah, it it is. It's stupid. So I think that that's the answer to that question. Like what can we do to help men is a, we need to be better and B we need to teach our children better. Mm. Um, you know, we need to teach our children, like, and, and anybody who have boys to say, like, yeah, you can be rough, you can be tumble, you can, uh, you know, you can love hunting, you can love fighting, like, you can do all those manly things, but it's also okay to cry. It's also okay to find a woman that you love and cherish and think is amazing and treat her like the goddess that she is, without being told you're, you know, you're, you're too sensitive or, you know, you're, you're, you're head over heels or you're whipped.
1: That's what I was going to say. You're whipped. (laughs) Like,
0: like, no, I'm not whipped. I just cherish and love this person so much that I want to do what's right for them.
1: I love that. I'm so grateful Robert got brave enough to open up about his experience as a man in this be-a-man toxic day and age. I really hope that we can raise our future generation to know it's okay to have emotions and sensitivities. Before we go, I did want to talk a little bit about Robert's side of Bethany's story. But before that, I want to introduce you to this new amazing podcast that I just came across. Hey,
2: I'm Gabby Wilkinson, and I am the creator of Dear God, I'm Sad. Dear God, I'm Sad is a brand that I created with a mission to craft a healthier and more holistic relationship between mental illness and Christianity. One of the ways that I'm doing this is by hosting a weekly podcast called the Dear God, I'm Sad podcast. So join me in this mission as I interview experts and contemporary scholars in the field of mental illness, faith, and the intersection of the two, share stories from people who have experiences with mental illness and faith and provide my own thoughts as a chemically imbalanced Christian. All this with the hopes that these conversations and stories and thoughts diminish the stigma of mental illness in faith spaces and promote healthy responses to mental illness by faith leaders. You can find me and keep up with the brand at DearGod underscore I'm sad on Instagram. And you can listen to the Dear God, I'm sad podcast everywhere you get podcasts. To join me for this ride as we foster in this new age of Christianity where we respond to mental illness with compassion and kindness and goodness and beauty. So I will see you
1: next Monday. Isn't that so interesting? I'm really excited and I will put the link to her show in my show notes. Okay, now back to Robert. If you haven't yet listened to Bethany's story, let me remind you that Bethany struggled with mental health and even postpartum psychosis. Her story got really intense, and I've been curious ever since how that story went through Robert's lens. So there's one part of, you know, Bethany's story when it gets really intense, and I'm curious as how that story was from your point of view with the suffocation incident of where she was like, or were you not there? Oh, no, you were at work, huh?
0: Oh, yeah. No, I wasn't there. I I wasn't. Um, Where she (laughs) she almost suffocated Maggie. Uh, I think that's the story. Yeah. Um, (laughs) See, and, and you hear me laugh. You hear me laugh right now because this is this welcome to, welcome welcome to that coping mechanism that I've had for so many, many years. And, and, and it just kind of like, people probably would hear me laugh right now and go, why are you laughing? Like your wife admitted to almost killing your child. And I, I, it's not funny. It's not funny. Um, how, how I handled that was that was the moment that I like realized uh, my realizing I had like anxiety. Uh, so when, when our first was born was the first time I ever went and saw a therapist. Um, I was in college. We still lived with like her parents. Uh, I didn't make hardly any money. She couldn't hold down a job because she had celiac disease that was undiagnosed. And so she'd always have to either quit jobs or she'd lose jobs. Uh, And this was in one of those breaks of jobs when she got pregnant. And I was just like, as a man who has to take care of everything, has to be the breadwinner, has to do this, has to do that. Like those stereotypical men things, I almost had a breakdown myself. And I went and finally saw a therapist and we talked about things. And that's where I learned my coping me- mechanisms that like keep my anxiety down to a level where I don't need medication. And some of that is humor and some of that, that's fine. But then when she had our second and really the postpartum hit real hard, um, I thankfully had already kind of gotten that help from my anxiety, which allowed me to be there for her. Now, from a man's standpoint, yeah, it's scary. It's scary. And I could see where a lot of men would just go. I'm out of here like this is hard but I didn't sign up to be married to somebody because it was always going to be easy like I haven't been married to my wife for almost 17 years because it's always been easy it's just I you know I knew I loved her very very much and there was no way for her to get through this without my help See, at that point, we had lost her niece. We had lost my friend, um, and I knew that if I if I were to not be supportive or to be there to help, I'd lose her too. And I lived with an absent father, and they would just not have a mother. Um, and so from from that man's standpoint, um you know, going back to the, like, you've got to be a man, you've got to do this or that. Uh, There's times I felt like I couldn't cry. I didn't talk to people about it. Um, it was hunker down, do what you need to do, be there for your family, get her some help. Um, to some extent, go through some hard times where she just didn't want to get help because she didn't think there was anything bad. I mean, that was the part where she realized, like, I need the help. And, it, you know, um, so it was easy to get the help after that. But like there was stuff you know leading up to it, but, but I didn't talk to people. I didn't talk to anybody about it. Um, certainly didn't talk to friends about it. Uh, would some of them have listened? Probably. Um, but there was that, that thing that was ingrained in me on men be men and don't talk about it. Don't ask for help. You just gotta push through and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and don't show any weakness. You know, show no weakness at all. Like they, you're, you're not a man if you're showing weakness. And, uh, the, that, that didn't help me any, you know, that, that didn't make it easier on me. It probably made it way harder. So in that aspect, like, could more marriages be potentially saved in certain ways? If men stopped just being men and started being compassionate flawed human beings
1: Ooh, that was a good quote right there (laughs) i'm always listening for good quotes (laughs) which is stupid (laughs) but it's true (laughs) one conversation that is almost always a man's first conversation is what do you do for work it's just a good conversation starter but so often a person's identity gets wrapped up into that i'm so intrigued that we never really even touched on that with robert so yes i asked him about his work He went to college for sociology and communication, but somehow wound up as an acoustic engineer. Doesn't it seem like we often like people at work to be professional and to just know what they're doing and be confident? Again, showing no weaknesses. Robert opened up about how he really feels, and I'm willing to bet that many people feel the same, but few actually are talking about it.
0: I'm dealing with a lot right now just because I just came across a term recently that's uh, imposter syndrome. And mm-hmm. this is this is where I say, like, when you gave that when you gave that compliment and I was like, uh, it's really hard for me to take that compliment, is because um I've just come across a thing. I, I I made friends with a guy in our ward who's kind of like a life coach workout guy, you know, and uh he posted something online that, that mentioned imposter syndrome, and I was like, oh my gosh, like, oh, oh my oh. And then I really looked into it and I realized like I follow it to a T. Like I have imposter syndrome. I have guys that work kind of underneath me in a sense. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say that cause like, I'm not necessarily their boss, but like I manage a lot of their projects. And, but these are guys with like PhDs and, uh, and master's degrees in acoustics or mechanical engineering or astrophysics. And I'm over here and I'm, I'm in a higher position. I get paid more. And I'm like, one day my boss is going to figure out that I'm a big dummy. (laughs) And like, and he's going to just be like, but then I go to work and he's just like, no, you're doing great. Things are good. Like you're getting stuff done. Everything's happening. Like you're doing your part. You're helping these guys stay on task for their parts and like nothing but praise. But I walk out of these meetings and I go, he's going to figure out that I'm an idiot. Like he's going to figure it out. Uh, to the extent when i was i was looking into imposter syndrome and they say it's you know it's usually the highly educated and highly successful and i go i looked at bethany and i said i'm neither of those and she goes you're doing it with the video like <laughs> what is wrong with you and and so i'm trying to be really a lot better when you're like you know i i've seen that and it's like it's really good and i'm just like okay thanks yeah you know, like i'm trying yeah. to really like take those And take those compliments because.
1: And just um, say thank you. That's the hardest thing is when someone gives you a compliment just to say thank you and just leave it at that.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, you don't have to include any of this, but it's just like, it's one of those things that like I'm working on now um, because once again, if I can figure out and get past that, I think, you know, that takes away some of that anxiety and those anxieties that I have, which allow me to be better for everybody else and Mm. just be a better person in general, you know?
1: I should ask you, what is something that's uncomfortable to talk about right now that you feel like you would need to talk about? Is that it?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's one of those things. Like just the fact that I, I so openly um, talked about like my childhood and mm-hmm. the way that things were in my family, because as an example, like my dad would go to church and you'd hear it all the time. Like, oh, he's such a good guy. He's so great. And I'm like, what are you talking about? at home he's a freaking monster you know and to to just kind of keep that facade you know I acted like everything was fine you know and so just the fact that I've openly mentioned those things openly done that openly talked about these things um and and I don't know who will listen to this uh you know and if there's people that like, like may know me and that that's one of the things that I'm doing this for too is like there's a lot of people who I think look at me and go oh That's, that's Bethany's husband. (laughs) You know, like we started this out with like, I'm the husband of the celiac. Like everybody knows Bethany. She's very like open about things. She's very opinionated. She's this or that. Like people know that she's very opinionated about things. What people don't understand is, and I sit there and I go, I wonder how many people go, why can't he just keep his woman uh, in check? Or how does he feel about all these opinions? Well, 90% of the time, they're the same opinion. I like, love that. We feel the same way about things.
1: Full disclosure, I have been one of those people.
0: So some of my best friends are not members of church. Some of them, like, I got friends who are Satanists. Um, total opposites when it comes to religion, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I have friends that just agnostic, atheists. You know, I've got friends that are members of our church. I've got friends that are tattooed from wrist to neck. Um, you know, and my, one of my, so... I know he won't be listening to this probably unless I, I told him to. I don't think he would. Um, but a friend I made out in California, his name's Marco, and he's easily one of the best people you'll ever meet in your life. Um, super nice to like everybody, makes friends with everybody. He's just, he's such a really nice guy. And I mean, he's got full sleeves. He's got big back tattoos. He's got all these things. And it's just like my children from the day they were born have been around this guy. They know him as uncle Marco. And, you know, so they, they've seen plenty of friends with like tattoos and things. And they mentioned like, what would you do if I got a tattoo? I'm like, I do nothing. Just please wait till you're 18 and get something that's meaningful. That's all I ask, but I do nothing, you know? And that's so against that culture of our church. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's so against that. And, 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 you know, I I think a lot of people go like, Oh, uh, you know, how does Robert feel about this? How's And it's like, I'm just not as vocal about it. Uh, and I kind of want to change that. I want to change that idea that I'm not as vocal about things. And that's cool. Uh, and that, that's kind of one of those goals of things and why I was like, yeah, let's do this. Let's, let's have this conversation and let's talk <laughs> about, you know, and let's talk about hard things, you know, let's talk about things that are emotional and like, uh, maybe even be a little bit hard to hear at times, mm-hmm. you know, um,
1: so what would you say, yeah. especially in Arizona, I feel like it's a very conservative um, mindset. What, what would you say to people who are in the church and hear you say these things and like what it means about your testimony? Does that question make sense? I don't know how to ask it, but like, do you know what I'm saying? Because I feel like people can see one thing and say, oh, they must not have a testimony or they got a tattoo, they must not have a testimony. But like, that's not true. You're Bethany's testimonies are some of the strongest that I've, that I know. And so it's like, how can we communicate that we're just normal too? That was a big question. Um,
0: <laughs> that, that's a hard question. And it wasn't like, clear. You're making, <laughs> no, you're, you're making me think because like, you know, because that's, that's a problem I've had actually is like, when I was 16, 17, and I told you the story about the lady who was like, you shouldn't be passing the sacrament. I know the things you do. And I said, what do, what do I do? It was at that moment that I had to make a decision it was do i believe this stuff do i do i believe it enough that i'm not i'm not at church for that old lady i believe this for me this is for me it's not for her it has nothing to do with her and i would say there's times i i wonder if we're ostracized at church because my wife is as outspoken as she is right And she says things and she has no problem hiding those things. And you know, and sometimes it's not as conservative as as others are, right? Um, and we've wondered if we're kind of ostracized and if I'm ostracized, you know, just from being married to her. But what they gotta understand is um my opinions are I've got them as well, and they follow right in line, usually. Sure, there's things we disagree on, but like. They, they're usually not too different, but I'm not really worried about ostracizing. Uh, it's nice to have people there who like, you know, are are good to see and everything, but like, I I don't do it because of them. Um, I'll be one of the first people to say, I think our culture in our church is one of the most toxic cultures ever. And it was important for me to, to realize like, what's doctrine and what is culture and one of the best things that was ever said to me was we were having an appraisal done on our house here in Arizona as we were doing a refi and a lady came in and she's looking around and she had like a tattoo on her leg and some stuff and I was just like no big deal and I don't care and she all of a sudden looks at me and she goes so are you guys are you guys LDS and I was like well she didn't say Mormon but she said LDS and I said well yeah yeah I mean I you can't really tell we only have like one or two pictures of Jesus we don't have temples everywhere we We and there was one little quote that Bethany had up on a on a front table that was from a scripture. And she said, Oh, I saw the quote and I know that's from the Book of Mormon. She's like, Cause I'm LDS. And I was like, Oh, you know, maybe she grew up that way. And then I she started petting our dog and I saw like a little bit of her garment. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, like you're in. Like you're like full on. Like you're not just, you know, pretend here or like I grew up it, like you're full on is what I'm saying in my head. And We got talking about things and and she said, Well, the one thing I tell my daughter is the gospel is something you have to follow. The culture is something you choose to follow. And I went, Yeah. it, it, It really is. And it's important to teach our children and differentiate like what is doctrine and what is just part of that culture. And sometimes that culture can be a little toxic, like when we talk about You know, the purity culture that we tend to have, and, you know, things of that nature, like give me a freaking break. Or, like, even when we talk about like the LGBTQ community and in regards to church and like just those types of things, like, I don't know, it was really long ago that I realized like I'm here for me, not you. And, and so a lot of that culture, I'm just going to say, screw it. Like, I don't care about your stupid culture. I don't care what you think is what's right when it's not right. It's right for you, I guess, but like the simple gospel principles are what's right for all some of these cultural things and like the way we treat, you know, well, I'll say it, the way we treat people who come home from missions early, um, the way we treat, uh, you know, men and women who, you know, maybe do have premarital sex, um, you know, you being a woman and who grew up in our church probably heard the, the lessons of like the chewed bubble gum or, you know, things of that nature or the licked cupcake or, you know, whatever. And I was, I, this just brought up a a memory of mine because I remember having that, we had this lesson about the chewed bubble gum and me being the punk rock kid. I am, they were like, or or I think it was the, I think it was actually the licked cupcake where they are like, if somebody licked this cupcake, would you want it? And I'm like, yes, I would. Please give me a cupcake. Like, I don't mind that they just licked it once. I will eat that cupcake. And I just remember them being like, that's not how this is supposed to go kind of like mentality. I'm like, but I get what you're saying. And at the same time, like my wife's, you know, maybe not been perfect in her youth, neither, maybe at I, but like it, you know, as a religious standpoint, you know, we believe in the atonement and we believe that everything's forgiven. So if we can be forgiven and yet you still bring it up, you're not doing it. And that type of toxic, like, like that mentality that is in this culture is is terrible. Um, and then same with like, you know, suddenly you got to ostracize people because, you know, they came out as being gay or something. It's like, I get it. I'm not asking for the church to change policy of like temple marriages and things like that. But what I am asking is like, don't treat your children differently. If you have a child that comes out, like don't ostracize them. I mean, I look at my two beautiful daughters and I go you know, if one of you came out as being gay, like the idea of not having you in my life or, you know, you, you commit suicide because you feel like you're not loved or, or just not, you know, not even being there hurts me so much more than you not believing exactly the same way I believe or loving the same way I love. And it it hurts me to see that people, people do that. And that's not a doctrinal thing. That's a, that's a cultural thing and I love it when I see people change that I mean, I mean I'm not saying like I understand homosexuality necessarily I you know for whatever reason that's the way they are whether they're born that way or whatever it doesn't matter I don't care it's it's just I would much rather them be here and be able to love them than to know that something bad had happened or or, or they're not they're not here at all
1: mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's beautiful Ah, So much love flowing out of this kind, sensitive, emotional man. Imagine what the world would be like if this was more socially accepted and invited. How many men like this are hiding behind masks called masculinity? And how do we get them to speak up? I'm so grateful Robert came and unpacked all of this with us on here. We got a sneak peek into how the pressure of manhood is suffocating our men. Of course. There's pressure of momming and being a woman all the time and being perfectly beautiful and put together. Of course that's overwhelming, but at least we're allowed to cry about it. Imagine being a man and providing and holding that pressure of manhood and on top of that not being allowed to cry or show any weakness. How unfair is that? Can we just admit, being a man is hard, being a woman is hard, and yes we should keep going and keep trying also, we should cry about it. And with that, I ask. What do you wish people saw beyond your white picket fence? (sighs)
0: Uh, Beyond my white picket fence. I just wish people would see that like, it's okay. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to like, not be what everybody thinks you should be. That we're flawed. We're flawed people. That just because on my side, it might look good in there. There's craziness going on. You know, it's not all roses and perfect, but it's okay to, to say I'm having a hard time or I'm struggling with this, or I'm a freaking wreck beyond my white picket fence would be to not have the picket fence so that you see, like, maybe the grass is just a little overgrown. You know, it's not perfect. And I think people being able to say like, look, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be emotional. It's okay to to have feelings and to, to address those and not be afraid to address those and to speak up for those things that that you have. Uh, you know, and, and I guess I, just to sum it up, I think what I want people to see is just be yourself, be you, don't be somebody else. Don't try to be somebody else. Don't try to follow anybody else's thing. Just unapologetically be who you are and who you want to be and the person you want to be and don't say sorry to people when it offends them just be you and let people see it
1: thank you so much for listening i'll miss you till next time but if you need more no worries you can go back and listen to the entire first season if you missed it and or connect with me on instagram at beyond with chelsea where you never know what's going to happen next <laughs> link in the show notes and remember Lead with kindness because you never know what's going on for someone beyond their picket fence.